this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So over the last couple of years, there's been this like global pandemic. Have you guys heard about that? Anybody catch that? I make that joke all the time. It always gets at least a laugh. So um, anyways, so things, things were different the last couple of years. Um, not so much in Pagosa. I feel like Pagosa was like pretending like it didn't happen. But uh, in a lot of places, things were really, really different. I lived in Colorado Springs uh, when, uh, when everything started and information started like kind of like Every day there was a new update and thousands of people are, are hospitalized and all this stuff is happening. And then everybody's like, oh, no, actually, that's not true. And then everybody's like, oh, that's actually worse than that. And so, like, we were living in a city and it was like overnight everything closed. Like, so you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. And so we're, like, in our little matchbox of an apartment and we're just we would get in the car and we would go through a drive through and then drive through Garden of the Gods because you weren't actually technically allowed to be in the park either. <laughs> so we had to stay in the car. <laughs> and so uh, it, was a, it was a weird time. But over the last couple of years, did anybody pick up a new hobby? It was a, big, it, was a big, it was a big time for hobbies. Anybody pick up anything new? Anybody start baking or knitting or nothing? Everybody's just business as usual? No, nothing changed? All right, well, I picked up a hobby. It was, a, it was a big, I mean, with, with restrictions, people having to work from home, people getting laid off, it was a big time for hobbies. Some people took up, like, working out. Other people took up eating and, like, <laughs> um, somewhere in between. Uh, for me, I, uh, I love to read. I've loved to read for my adolescence and my adult life. I've always loved to read. But I love to read nonfiction. I like, to, I like to underline things. I like to circle things. I like to write margins in my notes. I like to quote things out of books that I read and feel really smart. I love books about the Bible. I love books about theology and the Lord and life and those kinds of things. And I think over the years, every year, I kind of just read a little bit more and a little bit more, but I've never really had a taste for fiction. And there's always been people around me that are, that are smarter than me and cooler than me that can read nonfiction and fiction. And I just, I could, I would take these books that people would recommend to me and I would get through the first couple chapters and I'm like, it's just, I don't care. You know, like I'm just, I don't care about this book. And, and I would rather read something even heady and academic and like it would wind me down and relax me and I would learn something rather than read a novel. But over the last couple years, I started reading fiction, probably for the first time since like I was made to in high school. And so um, I think the last novel that I read was actually written by a pastor and it was a pretty heavy handed theological allegory. So it wasn't like really like I was reading a novel. It was just like a, a, a Bible book with stronger language. Um, and, uh, and so my brother-in-law, Peter, he's going to be here in a few weeks. He's, uh, he's a missionary and he's going to teach in a few weeks, but he's like the king of all hobbies. So if you're ever wondering, like, should I try this? He's probably tried it, and he's probably really good at it. And so he's like, oh, I read, like, a novel every couple weeks. Um, you should check out this author. I think you'd really like him. And I was like, I don't know. I don't really read novels, and it's probably books are expensive. And turns out paperback novels are a lot cheaper than hardback Bible commentaries. So I was thinking, like, oh, I can't buy a trilogy. That's going to be, like, $200. He's like, no, they're, like, 8 to $9 a book. And I was like, Wow, that's amazing. Who knew that books were so cheap? So 
I picked up the first book in this trilogy, and spoiler alert, I loved it. I like got really into it, and I started reading, and I was just captivated by the story and the world, and I was just really gripped, and I found myself talking to other people about it and getting really excited about it, and somehow through that, it actually affected other parts of my life just by reading a novel. And I realized that there's a reason why some stories are good and some stories are bad. That sometimes you just have like really boring characters and really boring settings and all these sort of things. And it's like, even if a movie looks really pretty, it is just not very good. Have you ever experienced that? I feel like I experience that more often than not where I'm like, this movie probably cost millions of dollars and it just wasn't that good. You know, like it was, it was pretty, it was nice to look at, but it just wasn't good. And, and I started thinking about stories and it really actually started um, really influencing the way that I read the Bible and my life before the Lord because something that is a good starting point when you're coming into faith and you're coming into relationship with God is the Bible. And sometimes we like to count it all on experience, but there's something that's really potent and beautiful about the Lord actually giving us his word. But a lot of the way, especially in the West, we treat the Bible is that it's like a systematic dictionary. So it's like, I don't know if you've ever been in like a bathroom of a Christian uh, like uh, restaurant or something like that, and they'll have like a list of Bible verses for different situations that you're going through. Um <laughs> And, and it makes it look like, oh, the Bible's like a reference guide. So if I open to the table of contents, there'll be like aggravation is number one. And then like if I need something for being annoyed, there's number two. Way down here is something for my spouse. Over here is something for uh, zeal, you know. And, like, and they think that the Bible is like this systematic theology textbook. And so if you need something, you just got to know what the page number and you'll get there. And the reality is it's not like that. And when you read the Bible like that, either you will... In inevitably interpret it incorrectly, or you will miss a lot. You will misunderstand a lot of what's going on because the Bible, in essence, is a story. It's mostly narrative. It's mostly history. And even the parts that aren't narrative and history are like poetry, you know? And it's like, and there's a couple of things where it's like explaining what's going on and there's some teaching sort of stuff. But even those teaching things aren't just uh, like lectures. They're letters to people. That, like, there's things that you don't know that is a conversation. You don't get the letter back. When Paul sends a letter to Galatians, you don't hear what the Galatians have to say. You know, it's like there's more going on because it's a story. And there's elements of a story that make a great story. And I think sometimes um, my, my failing in reading the Bible and my failing in prayer and relationship to God is that I'm, I'm thinking of him as, like, a, a, uh, a machine to dump sort of formulas into and, and get a result. And, and I think sometimes like we, we read Proverbs and we're like, all right, if we do this, then this will happen and then this will work out like this and then boom, I have a faithful life before God. My, my kids will love Jesus and all these things will work out. And if it's true to life, we realize that doesn't always work out that way. There's more to the story. There's more to what's going on. And so this morning, I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. But I want to look at the story of the Lord. And so I have, oh, there it is. The story of the Lord and to look at this, this narrative that is the glory of God and the goodness of God, where both of those things, I think, are, 
are misunderstood. And if you're thinking to yourself, like, I've never misunderstood those things, that's probably like prime candidates to misunderstanding is thinking like, I think I get it. I think I get God's glory. Because uh, I tell this story all the time because it was really, uh, it really makes me look really dumb. So one morning years ago, I used to work here, then I left and then I came back. Uh, Years ago, it was a Sunday morning and I was in here by myself and it was uh, like before service and stuff. And I was just praying and I was walking and I was reading uh, Acts 1 and the disciples are asking Jesus, like, is this the time when you'll restore Israel? And it's so beautiful. And he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and them coming and tearing in Jerusalem, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, Lord, man, is this the time when you're going to restore Israel? And I was just praying through this and thinking about, like, the return of Jesus and all these cool things. And Jesus just, like, impressed on me this really simple phrase. And it doesn't always work out like this, but it was really powerful. And he's like, when I come you will be so surprised. And I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I feel like I'm, I'm going to tell people this story and they're going to think I'm like really prophetic. And then he's like, when you see me, you, you have no idea what it's going to be like. And I was like, well, I have some idea, right? Like, surely, like, I know a little bit. He's like, no, you're going to be absolutely surprised. And I was like, well, that's not, am, I, am I doing something wrong? And, and that was it. That was the end of the encounter. You know, after that, I was like, uh-oh. Like, have I, do I have bad theology? Like, what is, what is the problem? How am I, I have no idea what I'm going to see. Like, that's, that's crazy. And I start, like, looking through the rest of the, uh, the book of Acts, and I start looking through Revelation and all these sort of things. And what I discovered is that my view of the Lord, my view of his glory and his truth was so small that he's like, when you see me, you will honestly be surprised. Not that I have the wrong idea, but it's that I think so small, even when I think really big. Does that make sense? Anyways. So let's look at the essential elements of any story. Now I'm talking about this, like the Bible's not a textbook. The Bible's not just a systematic guide to theology, all this sort of stuff. And then I make a chart Um, because that's, you can see where my allegiances lie. So if you could put up that first one. So depending on where you took English class, they could say there's seven essential elements. There's three, there's 10. I picked five because I think they're the most relevant. So if there's any English teachers in the room, like you can text that number in the connect and we can talk about it. Sorry. Um, So number one, the first element in any good story is character. So sorry if that's hard to see, you should sit in the front. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I used to be really hardcore about sitting in the front when I was a youth pastor. And now I was like, I don't care. Um, But I'm going to start removing chairs from the back until there's only front rows. There you go. Um, So character. Character, I don't need to baby you guys through this. I think that makes a lot of sense. These are generally the main subjects and objects, mechanisms that the story goes forward. So characters uh, range from like side characters to people that are just passing by to unnamed sort of things to the main character. Number two is the setting. Every good story has a setting, and this isn't just like 1970s Paris, you know, it's not just like uh, the ancient Greek world or something like that. A setting is, uh, there's purpose, and there's time, and there's cultural context, there's all kinds of things going on. I uh, started reading a book uh, a while back that like, um, it was set in the 80s, and I wasn't alive in the 80s, sorry. Um, and so they kept referencing things, and I was like, was that really around? Was the internet and home computers around in the 80s? And, and I like, read through quite a few chapters, and I was like, 
is this like literally Earth in the 80s or is this some different sort of 80s? It was different. The home computers weren't a big thing. Uh, I learned. I looked it up. Um, but uh, so setting, there's all kinds of uh, background. There's all kinds of information. Even if you're familiar with a place that a story is taking place, there's a lot more to it than just literally where it's happening. All right. The third thing is conflict. You can also replace conflict with plot. But I think one of the most important mechanisms for a story uh, and the story's plot is conflict. Because if you've ever watched uh, a, like a movie without any conflict, it's really boring. And it just basically looks like a montage because there's no, nothing is happening. And so as much as we don't like conflict, as much as we would like to avoid and easily glide through conflict, that is what is true to life, that there is tension, that there is pressure and conflict. Um, number four is the climax. So this is where all of these elements, your characters, your setting, all of these things, all these threads are pulling together to one explosive, intense moment where hopefully things are drawn into uh, understanding. Number five is resolution. So after your major climactic event, then you have your falling action, and then you have your denouement, um, also known as your resolution. And so uh, what this is, is now there is an ending. There is actually a satisfaction, uh, a resolve to everything that is being spoken about. So when we look at this in terms of the story of the Lord, the story of, of the scriptures, the story of our faith, this, this history that we are a part of, there are corresponding uh, we can draw lines to all of these sort of things. So let's look at that, that next part of the chart. So when we look at character, there are all kinds of characters in the Bible. And sometimes people preach entire series based on David or um, Ruth or I don't know who preaches a series on Ruth, but somebody's probably has. Um, but like uh, there's, there's all these side characters, there's all these chief characters, all these sort of things. But the one of the most important things to realize about uh, history, about our life, because this isn't just the story of the Bible, but this is the story of everything, is the main character is the Lord. And when we think about this idea of the Lord, this is what we call theology. And so theology is literally the study of God. And when I think of terms like the glory of God, um, we are a Pentecostal church. And so we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that the Lord is working in the same way that he was in the Bible. He's working like that today. And so sometimes we talk about the glory of God like it's like this, uh, this like sort of force that like shows up sometimes and gives you goosebumps. Like that's God's glory. If, if I wasn't sweating during the pastor's sermon, God's glory wasn't there. You know, it's like, but when I think about the glory of God, I think about the truth about him. Because there are instances in the scriptures where his glory is something like physical and it is manifest. But when we give God glory, it's not like we need to create some sort of supernatural energy ball and throw it at Jesus. What we're doing is we are confessing and admiring the truth about God. We're confessing and admiring who he actually is and what he's like. And so theology, God's character is the glory of God. And so... When we think about the setting, the setting, um, you can probably guess, is like everything. So the setting is 
the um, the universe. You know, it's like obviously like we're probably the most concerned with this one habitable planet that we live in. But like the reality is that God actually did create everything. And the sort of cultural context to everything <laughs> is uh, what we call in theology cosmology. And so cosmology isn't something limited to, um, if you got that next slide, there it is. Uh, cosmology isn't something that's limited to like Christianity, but like generally like every religious worldview or even um, like secular worldviews have some sort of sense of cosmology. Like we have to have, provide an answer for where things came from. Because if we're just like, oh, this is, we're just here and now, that doesn't take people very off. That doesn't take people very far. Because it's like, if, if this is all we've got, uh, where do we turn to? What do we hope for? Like, what are we, like, are we the best it's ever been? Are we the worst it's ever been? Like, where do we look to? And so we look at cosmology as the origin of all things, the origin of where everything came from. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 15. And so not only did God create everything, which I'm about to show you in the scripture, but I think there's actually a lot of specific reason and motivation for why he created things and how he created things. So starting in verse 15, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, excuse me, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. For it was for the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, him being Jesus." And I think this is so glorious the way this is framed because we get this kind of three-part sort of introduction that um, everything was created by the Lord. And he, he breaks it down so specifically because we could read Genesis 1, we could read John 1 and those kinds of things, but he breaks it down so specifically like invisible and visible things. And that covers everything <laughs> because it's like I, I thought about it one day like, that the Lord literally needed to create concept. Because if he is uncreated, then nothing else has been created. So he created creation and then created everything. Does that make sense? Like, if it does, it probably shouldn't. That's crazy. That's, that's, like, uh, like, that's almost absurd because it's so profound and it's so unlike anything we have. And that is his glory because he is so unlike us. You know, it's like a man can build a house, a lot of men in Pagosa can build a house by themselves, you know, like not even asking for help. You know, they can build a house by themselves, but yet that house is much bigger and arguably much stronger than they are. But our Lord, the Lord, created everything by himself and it cannot contain him. Isn't that tremendous? Isn't that profound? And then Man, if we talk about the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It's crazy. Like, I hope that by the end of the day, you think, that's crazy, um, in a good way. But I think this is so profound and so beautiful because he says everything is created by him, and it's sustained through him, and it exists for him so that he would have the first place in everything. 
So when we're looking for the purpose of life, when we're looking for the reason and the, the, the um, sort of uh, synchronism of, of life and where things are going and what's going on, we can actually point to verses like this and see like all of this was created for God. All of this exists for his glory. That my life, even my own salvation is for God. That it benefits me hugely, but it ultimately exists for God. And he created everything for himself because he's, he's excited about his own glory. I'm getting a little ahead of myself with that, though, because we'll get there. It's there. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead a couple. Um, Austin, he's running my slides in the back, and I have like a lot for this chart thing. Um, <laughs> and so when we are looking at um, the glory of God, and we're looking at everything existing towards him. Um, if you guys are at all, like, looking in the worldview of, like, uh, modern psychology or anything like that, um, if you just look at this at face value, it, it can throw up some red flags. So God literally made everything, and everything exists exclusively for him. And so that way they would recognize and uh, attribute glory to him. It's like that sounds a tad bit, hear me out, like narcissism. Like if, if God was a bad guy, we would be in a dangerous situation. <laughs> like if we had a Lord who literally had all the power and said, it all exists for me. Like that kind of sovereign authority on earth has always been opposed and hopefully always been revolted against because that is scary because anyone gets enough attention and they will start to fall. They'll start to fail. They'll start to be weakened. They'll start to be corrupted. And so now we look, we're looking at the glory of God and his power and his wisdom and his infinity and he's uncreated and all these powerful words and all the omnis, you know, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, all these things. And then we have to have the question of his goodness because it's like, if he's not good and he does all these things, that's a little scary. What do we do? Either we just resign and say, like, I guess that's it. I guess we now serve the Lord, and whatever he says goes. Um, and whatever sense of justice I think I have, I just have to throw it out, and now I'm just a zombie, and I just have to follow this, this sort of thing. And I think, honestly, in terms of philosophy, that's where a lot of people go. There's a, a guy who, uh, he started, like, a, a semi-satanic religion, uh, and he, he had this quote, and this was kind of the mantra for their religion, is do what thou wilt. Because he thought about this. He thought about cosmology. He thought about inf infinity. And he's like, there's no one out there, man. <laughs> so just do whatever you want. That's what it means to be human. Just do whatever you want. And really, if we, if we take this thread for, far enough, it's like, if we have to think about who this person is. We have, to, we have to navigate and grapple with any vagueness we have about his character because if he's not good, then this is dangerous. You know, this is an abusive household. This is, this is an unhealthy relationship. But what I want to speak to you this morning is that the Lord is good. I like um, Psalm 5, or Psalm, yeah, Psalm 5, verse 4. It's a few down there. Austin, sorry. Um, and it's speaking of the Lord. It's for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and no evil desire dwells within you. Now, we can look at that and be like, okay, 
So is the Lord good because he says he is? <laughs> like, what, what are we actually looking at here? Because it's, it's, a, it's a serious issue, but the psalmist, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confesses to us in song and says, there's no evil in him. Even the most, like, I was talking with a few people about the Lord's anger this morning, because I don't even know why we were talking about the Lord's anger. But I was like, I could have, like, th- like two to three irritating experiences in my day, and I will yell at a kid. Like, I'm sorry if that makes you, like, not trust me, but, like, I have two small children, and they're toddling hard. And, like, I could have two or three annoying experiences, and I'll be like, ah! Like, please tell me somebody else can relate to that. Like, just getting irritated. (laughs) Aaron's pointing at his mom. (laughs) Ouch. And I was thinking about the Lord's anger. We've been reading Isaiah. We've been reading these, these prophecies about judgment. It's like the Lord's anger is not like that. The Lord's anger is long suffering. It is patient, but it is just. And so when we read passages about his judgment, we're like, that is so severe. How mean. And then you realize, like, this has been going on for thousands of years that he has given us opportunities and mercy and grace. And it's like his anger is not like our anger. There's no evil way in him. And I've got so many evil ways in me. And I'm saved, man. I'm, like, on the road to sanctification. And the Lord's still like, wow, that was really short and irritable what you just said to Shelby I'm like oh my gosh it's like that attitude that you have in your heart that you didn't say with your mouth is inappropriate and evil and I'm just like there's no evil way in you Lord this is crazy and he describes himself as good often if we look at Exodus 33 um, this could be a familiar account it could not be but starting in verse 19 um, speaking of the Lord he says and he said I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And I think that's tremendous because when God is talking about his manifest glory, that like Moses actually saw it, and it like shook the ground, and people were scared, and he called it his goodness. It's like what you're about to see that's going to like scare people is my goodness. That's the sum of what I am. I, I am good. And later on in Mark, um, this, this uh, smarty pants rich guy comes up to Jesus and says, like, uh, good teacher, how can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just pulls a fast one on him. He's like, why do you call me good? Only the Lord is good. And it's all framed in this context of this guy is asking, how can I be like you? How can I inherit eternal life? And he's like, what are you talking about when you say good? Because only the Lord is good. And we're thinking about this, and we're thinking about the, the decisions he makes and the things going on in the world and all these sort of um, variables going into the Lord's goodness. And it's a pretty consequential, consequential conversation because if the Lord did create everything, rightfully so, like if we go back to the man building a house analogy, if you finance and build your own house, you can do with it whatever you want. If you want to build a house and then burn it down, it's your prerogative. If you want to build a house and you want to live in it, nobody can tell you it's like, but that's my house. It's like, no, it's not. I, I did everything. It's my house. And so if the Lord really did create everything, if he really is that glorious, then he gets whatever he wants. Because no one else provided for him. No one else helped him out, right? Does that logically make sense? 
And so when we look at that, a couple things that he asks for is he asks for exclusive, indiscriminate, altogether worship from all people everywhere. And I mean, if we really get down to it, all creation, everything needs to love him, which sounds, again, scary. If I said that to you, it's like, I just want everyone to love me and only me. It's like, we need to set you up with a counselor. We definitely need to take you off staff. We definitely, we probably should, somebody should turn off your microphone right now. But like, that's the Lord. And that's what he says. And he says that often. He actually says that's the most important thing in life. So if we look at Deuteronomy 6, I have it up there. Um, this is uh, what they call the Shema. This is what uh, Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people to this day will, will sing this and confess this. And it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Do I have verse 6 on there too? No. Um, but uh, later on, Jesus talks about this as like, um, we're having no gods before the Lord. We're, we're loving the Lord with everything inside of us. This is exclusive, indiscriminate worship. This is you only worship him. You only love him. And that's what he demands. That's what he says. Um, also, he, he kind of describes this love in a really specific way. So when you love him and only him, it is at the expense of yourself. So you need to deny yourself. And so Matthew 16, Jesus uses this relatively violent imagery to describe what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to love God. He says, then he said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, meaning follow him, meaning be a Christian, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what he's saying is what you want you need to deny. You need to embrace what I want, and you need to do the things that I do, which are not limited to, but include dying. And not dying like a, an easy death, but dying a painful death, a shameful death. And these are the things that the Lord is asking, and I'm not trying to like talk you out of, like if you're following Jesus today, I'm not trying to talk you out of it. This will have a conclusion, don't leave now. Um, <laughs> so we, this is a serious question. When we talk about the Lord's goodness, we have to grapple with this because if he really is that glorious, then he deserves all these things. And, and I know like uh, last week, Nate talked about like, I think that was actually a couple weeks ago, excuse me, that C.S. Lewis co quote where it was like, we can't just think that Jesus was like a smart guy or like a real spiritual dude. Like he has to be the Lord because if he wasn't the Lord, then he was a crazy person because he said, that he was the Lord. <laughs> he was forgiving people's sins. He was doing all these sort of things. He's confirming his own identity as the Christ of God. And so it's like, if he wasn't the Lord, then he was a crazy person. Or I think C.S. Lewis said, or the devil himself. So, so when we talk about goodness, there are what I'm calling like two general views. And so if you don't fall into this camp, I'm not trying to like, just like tell you what you think. This is like the extreme poles. And so we can generally map out everything else in between. But there you have two extreme um, views of the Lord's goodness. When we say God is good, or like in, in churches sometimes they'll be like, uh, God is good. And people will be like, all the time, and God is good. And then to do the little call and answer thing. Um, number one, when we think of God being good, we think God is good, so therefore the lives of those who follow him are going to be fun 
easy and prosperous. And some of you are chuckling right now because you're like, I've been following Jesus for 30 seconds and I know that that's not true. Like, because, but honestly, that's where a lot of this comes from. Is that when we think God is good, we think like, that means that when I follow him, it's going to be better. And just to shed some light on this, this is a lot of the way people preach the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. Is to say like, man, your life sucks. Your wife left you. You lost this. You're hurting with this. All these things are happening. Come to Jesus. He'll make it better. And that's how people come to Jesus is they're like, especially like missionaries in the third world. I've, I've spoken to so many people who are experiencing backlash because they're sharing the gospel with people in poor countries and saying, Jesus will seat you at the right hand with princes and he'll make your life better. And then a year down the road of following Jesus, they're suffering persecution and greater poverty than they ever experienced before, if not losing their lives. And now they're like, wait, <laughs> this is not what I thought following Jesus meant. And, and I think there's something that's positive about believing that the Lord will provide for you and believing that he does good things for those who, who love him. But there is also something where if you think his goodness is limited to making you happy, you're not serving God, he's serving you. And when times of pressure come, you'll crack. The second two view, and you guys may think this sounds crazy. Oh man, I love that I have them up there, that's great. The second view is when God says good, it really means bad. And, and full disclosure, I fall into this camp pretty often where I'm just like, you know, it's my inheritance is in another age. You know, it's just going to be, I'm going to be poor. Things are going to be hard. I'm probably going to suffer with this, that, and the other for the rest of my life. And it's just the way it is. So when God is good, it means that he's got a really weird definition of good. And my definition of good is completely different than his. And what I mean by that is his definition of good is me suffering. And, and there's a lot of people who come this way. And, uh, and a lot of times, this is, this is motivated by experience. It's like, you know, I've prayed for a lot of sick people, and a lot of sick people haven't gotten healed. Or I've prayed for sick people, and they've gotten healed, and then they get sick again. So it's like when God says he's good, he means, like, he's kind of good. You know, like, if I was God, I would be a little bit gooder than, than that. But, like, it just doesn't always work out. So just don't set your hopes up. And, and the reality, the positive side of this is, like, you're, you're not depending on a sign. You're not depending, like... Because hopefully, through this, like, you'll follow Jesus even if you are suffering. But the reality is this is an inadequate, inappropriate view of who God is. Because you think, like, even just the temptation of thinking, like, I would probably be able to do this better. <laughs> like, I would probably be able to be, like, I remember talking to a guy on the phone, and he needed some help, and I couldn't really help him. And, uh, and he just told me, he's like, you know what? God is so messed up. And I was like, whoa, we, like, I couldn't give him a ride. And he's like, you know what, God's messed up. Because I would never treat my son like that. Speaking of Jesus, he's like, he just, like, why would you do that? That's so gross. And he's like, and I just know now that God is just, he's not good. He's, he's evil. And I talked to him on the phone with this guy for a little bit longer, and and it was hard because what he was saying felt logical. Not like I was tempted to agree with him, but it feels logical. It's like, I wouldn't do that with my kid. You know, I wouldn't send my, my kid to suffer for the sake of other people. And the reality when we get into Trinitarian theology is he did it himself. You know, like he, he suffered his own wrath by himself. 
and it's like for other people who aren't good. <laughs> you know, it's like when we get into that, it's like I wouldn't do that. And, and I think that's a, that's, a dangerous, um, that's a dangerous thought process. And so we look at verses like James 1. Let's look at James 1 when we're talking about the goodness of God. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So we look at this and we're like, man, it's going to work out. You know, my knees hurt and I'm lonely, but it's going to work out. You know, because every good gift comes from God. Every perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Like, it sounds nice. The Father of lights. It's not the Father of shadows. It's not the Father of uh, soap scum. It's the Father of lights, right? But then we get this other one. The next verse, um, John 16, 33, these are the words of Jesus. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Look at what he speaks. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So he's literally saying, so that way you will be at peace, just know life is going to be hard. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's perspective number two, you know, is you're just saying like, you know what? My hope is only in Jesus, so everything else is going to fall apart, but I can hope that, that Jesus is there. And uh, the good and perfect gifts, we'll get to them eventually, maybe in heaven. I don't really know. Um, and I think something that is really humbling and really important as we're having these sort of conversations, as we're going through, the, through these sort of things, is to realize that all preaching is inadequate, and all points of view are... Um, inadequate. They're all limited. So even the most wise, most sage people have a limited vantage point because we are not the sovereign divine creator. And thank God that we are not. Uh, because if we had to be the judge and the king and the sovereign unmatched authority, we would inevitably be corrupted and inevitably do a bad job. So let's talk about the next story element as we're looking into this. We can go back to the chart. If anybody missed the chart, it's back. So the next thing is conflict. And in theology, there's a word for this. I actually just learned this recently. Uh, hamartiology is the study of sin. It's a real fun study. Um, talking about what's wrong. And again, this isn't something exclusive to Christianity or even religion. Every worldview has to explain that something is wrong. Like, we, we were a part of a mission school, and we did a lot of, like, walk up to people on the street and start, try to start a conversation about Jesus. And every single time I had a conversation with somebody, everybody agrees something is wrong. A lot of people can point fingers to what is wrong. A lot of people can even offer, like, an idealistic general view of how to fix things. But the reality is there is something wrong. That is our conflict. That is the mechanism that's driving this plot forward. And we need a solution because that's the hope of conflict. The, nobody likes just conflict for the sake of conflict. Maybe some people do. But like the reality is we need a resolution. And so when we're looking at sin or we're looking at what's wrong with the world, it can be a major downer. Because when we read the insight, like we read from Colossians 1 and stuff about why God created everything, it seemed like he had a really good idea. And he's obviously capable of carrying out his idea in a glorious fashion, but yet there's still so much wrong in the world. 
there's still enemies. There's still people fighting. There's still prejudice and, and there's injustice and all these things that are going on. And the re reality is he created people to be in this setting. He created people to be here. He created the earth to be inhabited. He didn't just build a house to burn it down. Does that make sense? He's not just like, you know what? I would really love to, like, in the Trinity, there's just no space for my wrath. I just can't get mad at any of you guys. So let's just create everything, and then we'll burn it all down. Like, there is a purpose in what is going on, and there is a solution to what the answer is. And so I've been doing some studying for my uh, credentials and licensing here in our, in our church fellowship and stuff. And uh, we've been reading the book of Romans, and uh, the first three chapters, like, are so, like, everybody always quotes from the latter several chapters of Romans, because the first three are, like, number one, all those dirty Gentiles are guilty, no matter what, they are guilty of God's wrath. Number two, the Jewish people and the morally righteous people, also guilty. Number three, in case you miss the first two, all are guilty. And then it's like, great. Uh, this letter is starting off so strong. Like, I'm so excited to hear what, the, what Paul says to the church in Rome. Like, now that everyone literally deserves God's wrath. There's more to it than that. There's more in there. Like, there's like the, like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power, whatever. There's more in it. But that's like a big deal. So, the Lord saw in his perfect wisdom that man would malign his plan, that man could, could decide to, to leave the way of God. And we talk about all kinds of things of Israel and the law and all these different things, but it really comes down to this relationship that God is just to punish and people are deserving of punishment. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is where it gets really good. Starting in verse 1. You were dead. Um, isn't that really good? Isn't that good news? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. And this isn't just like throwing down on just one person. According to the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that is everybody. Among them, we too all formerly lived. And I think that's really profound. He's saying like, we, are, we were all dead. That everybody who's not here right now is, is dead. They are, they are hopeless. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show surpassing riches of grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's a lot there. And really, upon reflection right now, I probably could have just preached from this passage, but the, the chart was too much fun, and so I went with the chart. Uh, the reality of the story of the Lord 
is that it sets us up on this progression that he created everything. He saw that it was good. And then man everywhere decided that they were going to do their own thing. Now God, and this is a point that we probably could debate about quite a bit, God was justified to judge those who betrayed his plan and his design. That's what the scripture says. That's what we see is, is the truth that we, we frame our theology around. But he had mercy. Not because we had some sort of valuable skill that he wanted to, like he's got all those skills. He doesn't really need help. It's not because we had something that was of great worth to him that he would be like, man, I really just don't want to lose that, that precious thing that is in them. It's like, no, because he had mercy, because he's full of grace, and because he loved us, he said, I should punish them, but I'm going to make another way. That I am still just, but I am full of mercy. So this is the solution. And there's a word for this in theology. If we go to the chart, I might be a little out of order. It's soteriology which is the study of salvation, the study of solution, the study of hope and peace and right standing with God. It is seen in the cross of Jesus that there was doom, there was hopelessness, and God said, I'm going to have mercy, and I'm going to make another way. I love this. Okay, so I heard this story. I'll, I'll be quick. This, this guy was preaching, and he said that he was in Africa, and they would tell this story to describe the gospel. So there's this king in a kingdom, and somebody in this kingdom is stealing chickens. And so he makes a public address to all people of the kingdom. The thief of the chickens will receive 10 lashes with a whip braided with metal pieces. They will suffer for their, for their crime, and chickens still keep getting stolen. He's like, well, then let's do 25 lashes. More chickens are getting stolen. And he's like, all right, you guys don't take me seriously, 100 lashes. No man could survive this. Chickens are still getting stolen. Finally, after a few months' time, they find the thief. And everybody is shocked that it is the king's own mother has been stealing the chickens. So what does he do? In theology, we call this the divine dilemma. He, he looks at this woman who is dear and precious and he loves her. And if he doesn't give justice, then he appears weak. And if he doesn't give mercy, then he is cruel. So what does he do? Tie her up. Take her into the, fr the middle of the kingdom. They tie her to a post. He looks the executioner square in the eye and he's like, you have to do this. If you don't do this, I'll take your life. And they're like, okay. He's like, but one more thing. He removes his royal robe. He steps down off his throne. He wraps his arms around his mother. Give the lashes. Because justice says there has to be punishment for this crime. And only the federal head, that is the king himself, can propitiate that justice in himself. So he was able to accomplish justice and mercy at the same time, and that is soteriology. That is the hope of the cross. That the brutal pain that you rightly, rightfully deserve, he took on himself 
Sometimes we think about like God as good cop, bad cop, like God the Father is really mean, but Jesus is really nice. They're the same person, okay? Like they are one and they are three. That God the Father took out the wrath of God on God. He felt it. He was there. And that's the thing that sometimes people miss about salvation. We're not being saved from sin. We're not being saved from the devil. We're being saved from God because he deserves to punish us. But he is so good. That's what it means that God is glorious and he is good, that we deserve to be punished. And he said, no, there's another way. And only I can do this. Oh, jeez. I cried when I practiced that, you guys. Like, jeez, Louise. Um, In a couple weeks, uh, Nate's going to Kenya, which is going to be really cool. And I get to preach again, and I'm going to talk about Jesus again. And we're going to talk about the character of God a little bit more in in Christology. Um, Because uh, inevitably, if you're anything like me, the question is, how, why is God allowed to do that? (laughs) Like, how does that work? How is Jesus able to be God and also die? Like, that doesn't make any sense, but then not die. Like, we're going to talk about that. So if you have questions about that, there's, there's answers. So that's our, (laughs) that's our climax, right? Is the cross. So we see this main event, um, not in our lifetime, generations before us, everything changes. The way we look at the glory of the Lord has changed. The reverence, the glory, the honor, the cosmology, the setting, it's all still there. The homartiology is still there. Sin is still there. And we look at now the cross and we say, everything has changed. And now we're just on the fast track to a resolution. That there is a a place where all of these plot lines are going to be be, um, sewn together. And the king is going to be the king His children are going to be his children. The wicked are going to be punished, and all the wrongs will be made right, and everything will be right. And that's called eschatology, if you want to put that one up there. So if we look at the person of God, (laughs) despite the glory of God, we get the grace of God. There's an arrow in case you were copying the chart. That's a beautiful thing. I'm going to put the chart in the YouTube video because I'm really excited about it. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's really profound because it's like beyond the despite. So what despite would infer is that uh, it doesn't make sense. So despite the fact that God is glorious and right and just and whatever, we get the mercy of God, the grace of God, all those sort of things in the cross. But the reality is the more you think about this, the more you begin to realize it's because God is glorious and good, that we get the mercy and grace. Because again, this is, this, is, this is tens of thousands of feet above us. This isn't because you are extra special and super cool, God gives us mercy. That's why we are saved by his grace. That's why our faith in him and our allegiance to him is so beautiful and so important because it's because of him. It's because it's who he is. It's what he's like. That's why everyone has the same opportunity to be saved. If you believe on him, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you're saved, man. And, and if, if we don't take that as seriously as it is, that is severe stuff. I heard a guy tell a story about, he kind of allegorized the thief on the cross next to Jesus. If you're not familiar with the story, I'll go real quick. Um, there's this thief on the cross. They're both like cussing at Jesus because there's two like actual criminals that are being crucified with Jesus. And then after a while... The, uh, one of the criminals is like, you don't deserve to be here, do you? 
And uh, he's like, you know what? I am supposed to be here because I did a lot of things wrong and I knew the law. But uh, you, you're not supposed to be here. And uh, Jesus says, today, you're going to be with me in the presence of the Lord in paradise. And the guy would allegorize the story and say, like, man, when uh, that guy got to heaven, like, he came before, like, archangels and stuff, and they're, like, uh, asking him about theology. Like, what do you think about propitiation of sins? What do you think about federal headship and, like, your, your substitutional atonement? He's like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> He's like, did you go to church? He's like, no. Have you ever read the Bible? No. <laughs> Why are you here? He's like, because he said I could go. And that's it. That's why we're saved. That's, that's our merit. That's our call to success is that Jesus is for us. Jeez, Louise. All right. Uh, I'll do two more Bible verses, okay? Romans 3.23. <clears throat> this is what we were talking about before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is black and white. I could talk to you about the context, but the reality is it means what it says, everyone is guilty. But then a couple uh, chapters later in, in chapter five, he talks about this. While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at that, for the ungodly. Go to the next one. For one will hardly die for a righteous person. <laughs> Though perhaps for the good men, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I think that's incredible. Like Paul's making the statement in, in this chapter in Romans and saying, man, in life, People will rarely give their lives for even good people. <laughs> Maybe sometimes for good people, but the love of God was demonstrated that while you were bad people, God died for you. He took his own wrath out on himself for you. So to close, I, I do want to close. I do want to wrap things up. Sorry, I definitely went longer than I timed it for. Sorry. Um, we live now in this resonance. We live now in this falling action from the cross where we have uh, two decisions. One decision is to, to believe and follow Jesus. The other decision is not to. And we, we can't run the risk of neutrality. And I, and I get this. I was not raised in church. I was not raised reading the Bible or in a Christian home. I got saved as like a kind of middle adolescent teenager. And uh, this is a lot to grapple with. This is a lot to take in, but the invitation is to um, trust and love God. The invitation isn't to understand everything, but the invitation is to trust and love him because in this life there will be trouble, but take heart because he's overcome it all. And the gift to follow him, to deny yourself and embrace him is so good. Because if we stop right there, that's really good. But the reality is every good and precious gift does come from above. And he does love his children and he does provide for them. And there is comfort and peace and hope because everyone will suffer. But if we suffer for Christ's sake, if we 
partake in his suffering, we also partake in his glory. Because Jesus suffered. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.